Hello and welcome to episode 32 of Jira Card Catalogs and the people who love them. I'm here today with the lovely Jessica Kerr. Good morning. Thank you, Coraline. That may be our show name today, but don't forget that the podcast is called Greater Than Code. And I am super happy to be here with Frayne Henricks. Thank you, Jessica. And it is my great pleasure to introduce Sam Livingston Gray. Hello, everybody. And I'm here to welcome Amy Unger to the show. The granddaughter of a former MIT computer, and yes, that was a job title, Amy was clearly supposed to be a programmer, but just did not get the message. Her wanderings have taken her through the land of libraries and archives and into software consulting, like you do. Now a software engineer at Heroku, she's deeply grateful for every scarce day she does not use Vim commands in Google Docs. Welcome to the show, Amy. Hi, everyone. I'm excited to be here. Amy, we'd like to start the show by getting to know our guests a little bit better. And our favorite question to ask is, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? I think my superpower has got to be walking cats. I did not think I would be a cat person. I'm very much a dog person. I love dogs, but my partner has cats. And so I have taken the time to learn to walk cats, which is basically understanding that you have no role absolutely none in the mission of actually getting from one place to another. And you're just along for the ride as the cat sits down in the middle of the grassy field and takes a nap. So you are well prepared to work in a team of software developers. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah, I do have some literal experience with herding cats. Nice. So um, what was it like growing up with a computer in your family? When I was going through library school, I had a wonderful advisor who suggested I read the Unlocking the Clubhouse book about women in the computer science program at, uh, I believe this is Carnegie Mellon. And it basically goes into all of the ways in which women are kind of suggested by society that maybe tech stuff isn't relevant. And at the back of the book, there's this wonderful chapter that is about the few women who did absolutely survive and thrive to a certain degree. And I realized that I was so lucky because I hit every single, my family, not me, my family hit every single one of those. So my grandmother was a computer. What that title meant at the time was that you would do the computation. So for her, she was a computer in the MIT wind tunnel, and they would get a whole bunch of measurements coming in from this big, massive system. And they would be the ones doing the computations to determine if a certain design of wing would have enough lift to allow a plane to fly. She went through the math program at at Wellesley, I have two other grandfathers who went through MIT. Both my parents went through MIT. And so there was really always this expectation that science and technology were things that were part of your legacy. And so I lead with the fact that I am a granddaughter of a computer uh, because to me, you know, I feel like I am mostly here because of luck that I happened to be in a family that really encouraged and supported me in doing a lot of techie things, even when I didn't think that I was going to be capable of it myself. And that for so many other people, that is not very much not the case. You said you didn't think you were capable of it yourself. Do you know why that was? In all honesty, I don't. And it took a long time for me to build that confidence. I think I lost that confidence right around high school. And I 
don't really know why. Seems pretty common. Yes. And I think looking back at my high school self, it's hard to see any rhyme or reason to a lot of things. So who knows? I think there was absolutely some aspect of at that time in your life, you start to get to realize that, hey, maybe your interest in equations is not going to affect some of the things that matter to you, such as popularity, such as having a decent social life. You know, and I definitely know I made a conscious choice to focus on the humanities at that point in my life because spending time learning about people and how organizations interact and have profound influences on people's lives really spoke to me as a 13, 14 year old going through all the, the changes that happen at that age and feeling a little bit perhaps out of the loop and not necessarily at ease with some of the dynamics that were swirling around me. But I think by about age 15, I had pretty much given up on math and science and had decided I wanted to go into history. In some sense, you discovered very early something that, uh, well, I know I'm only coming into in recent years of how interesting those those human pieces are. But in another sense, as kids, we have this idea that we can do anything and be anything. And then sometimes we lose that. But you've totally got your particular superpower back now. Yeah, I think it was a really painful thing to be forced into learning. I mean, obviously, there are incredibly more painful things to experience other than a little bit of teenage angst. But... I am to a certain degree grateful that I had enough challenges feeling at ease with people that I took a direction that was very focused on the humanities because I do think that if I had just been able to continue on my happy way, I would have completely ignored the humanities. And I might be one of those people who does not see the value in a strong humanities background in the tech field. One of those people who just wants to be a computer? <laughs> yeah, that's fair. How did your family react to your shift in course? Because it sounds like there was this family legacy of devotion to math and science. Were they supportive of you or did they try to steer you back? You know, I think I was having enough problems and there's a legacy of enough problems in my family that they were happy that I was most likely not taking drugs and was relatively sane. So the steer towards the humanities was not quite at the top of their list of concerns. It's not like you were voting Republican or anything. <laughs> She's a teenager. She can't vote. Yeah. Being a teenager is hard. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating to see how much the pressures that you experience at that age can really affect how you choose to see the world as an adult and what choices you make about what is important as you make your way to hopefully being a really good influence on society by making a difference. I'm in a position to have experienced two puberties, one coerced and one voluntary. And I can tell you that going through puberty at 40 is just as awkward as going through puberty at 13, but it has the same ability or potential to change your worldview for the better. It's definitely been my experience. Yeah, definitely. I think the effect of having so many 
changes around you feels incredibly destabilizing, but it's also was, I think, a really big and important change for how I valued what I wanted to learn and what I wanted to do. Did you end up going to college? I did. I started at a college in Los Angeles called Occidental uh, that was a great first year, but did not end up having some of the academic rigor I was looking for. So I transferred to University of Chicago, which has a very strong core curriculum. It's one of those programs where if you get out not having read Hegel, you are in the minority. And it really aligned with what I was looking for. It had a very strong set of humanities departments, and I felt really at home in the history department. And it was really an amazing experience to work with people who were, through their research, helping to form the stories that we tell ourselves that amount to our shared history, our shared culture, to a certain degree, how we see ourselves as communities, as towns, as countries, is through stories that we tell ourselves, that we tell our youths, that we tell our adults. And to see the process of those stories being created was a fascinating thing. And it was my first exposure to seeing how important it is to choose the records that we as a society want to preserve our primary sources. So that would be whether newspapers showing George Washington's first election or the note that a maid writes to her mistress saying that she's running off. The choice of what to preserve and what to spend our society's resources in order to keep around for generations, really informs what kinds of stories we can tell ourselves about who we are 50 years later, 100 years later. And so the history department there really brought me to a passionate love of archives and how we record and preserve information about ourselves. Wow. That's interesting. It seems like some of, the, some of what goes into that is our societal choices about who has just plain old access to literacy, right? Absolutely. And it ties into not only who has access to literacy and who can write those records, but also who can write which records, right? Yeah. It's easier to make the argument that you should preserve newspapers. And that puts an increased value on the people who not only can write, but choose that as a career, who have the knowledge to write into the editor and the power within that community to have the editor think, oh gosh, Mr. Sam Westinghouse. Yes, I will publish his editorial or letter to the editor. But it's far less likely that we are going to preserve the letters of Maid Joan. No one's going to think to do that. Uh, at least certainly nobody thought to do that in the 1800s. And so you end up in this really interesting situation. That letter of the maid who was writing to her mistress saying that she was running away is one of the few examples that you have to study the lives of the working class and why was it preserved? Well, because this mistress was married to a famous senator. 
And so therefore, it ended up in the official papers. So it's not just who can write, but it's who writes what and who has which connections. Yeah, I was listening to a lecture on medieval history and the author made the point pretty early on that almost all of the people at that time were peasants and almost none of their histories were recorded and preserved in any way. So the view that we have of that is almost entirely of the merchant class and, and above. Yeah, exactly. And the view you get is purely of, you know, counts of the number of serfs on X person's field. Occasionally, someone might have to resolve a dispute of two peasants, but it's really limited. And it's really recording the lives of these people with a narrowness of focus to their economic value and then when they cause problems for the elite. How is that different now where everyone has public platforms for sharing intimate details of their lives, but probably all of it, there's so much of it that it may as well be ephemeral? That's a really interesting question. And it's something that many people doesn't know actually has a corollary to paper archives. University archives and other formal archives that have a mission to preserve things have decades worth of a backlog of inventorying things. So the papers of a famous poet who may have died 20 years ago are still sitting in boxes, not important enough to catalog, and so are essentially unusable by researchers. And I think what we're seeing is that problem compounded because as we move into an age in which anyone can publish on the internet, first of all, archives are struggling to adapt some of their collection policies to collect that kind of material because it's incredibly hard to understand how to preserve Facebook. Do you do screen capture? Do you download the HTML and CSS and then make sure that you have preserved a version of IE5 and you have a computer <laughs> to run it? Do you instead create a collection policy for it that says some archivist is going to copy and paste or far better, you're going to write a crawler that is going to transform that into a text file, but lose some of the detail there. And I don't think anyone is advocating for copying it into a text file, but that would be the option that would be most stable to preserve, right? We're almost always going to have a way to read a .txt file. And then in addition to the question of what do we begin to collect, there's how do we categorize it and preserve it in a way that is accessible. And I think there are a lot of corollaries to the problems with paper archives. There's just a backlog. There are constantly higher priority things coming in. And so there's a real challenge there. I would add on top of that, there is a question of privacy. There are some interesting cases of libraries that may not have as much of a connection to some of the archival training, archival scholarship, that have made some interesting discussions about how to preserve records for their community. One uh, example I've heard of recently is someone uh, or a library that, that really wanted to build on their mission to be engaged with the community and preserve the community's history and started to preserve the posts on the neighborhood Facebook page. 
Now, the content there isn't particularly valuable. Uh, a lot of people with lost pets, with uh, free plants, but they're the occasional rant. Does that person who is really pissed off at their neighbor expect that to be available for eternity? I don't know. And it's hard to say. One argument is it's a public post on Facebook, but it's not exactly the same as the professor on his retirement date walking 10 boxes of papers down to the university archives. And so you end up with a lot of really difficult, challenging questions that because society does not yet quite have the answers to that, archives are really struggling to figure out what to do there. And of course, there's not enough money even to handle the paper archives. So there is a real reticence to really jump in there. There are a lot of organizations doing really great work. And I should, of course, tell our listeners that I am very far removed from the field. So I may be less able to celebrate the successes that I know are out there. Isn't Google the de facto archive of online life now? Well, there are some really interesting explorations about even the Internet Archive and how that might fit into thoughts and scholarship on archives themselves. They do not necessarily have the same level of a collection policy. It essentially, instead of having a formal collection policy, they outsource it to you, the maintainer of the website and your robots.txt file. And so there's some really interesting thoughts about how that affects whether we're collecting the right stuff and preserving it. But yeah, I, I think reliance on Google as the means of preservation is taking a question of who we are as communities, as a country, out of our hands and putting it into the hands of a company that exists to make a profit and exists within a system where they may delete results because that's what's going to make them money. So we're back to people's stories being reduced to their economic value. Yeah, I think if you treat Google as your way of figuring out what's important... Then absolutely. And Amy, like you were saying before, it's not just about what is stored. It's also about how it's retrieved and how it's presented. And we've seen, for instance, Google presenting Holocaust nihilism above legitimate results for World War II queries and things like that. Yeah, exactly. And there's a really interesting question, I think, for our communities and for our countries about what that line is. Because in the past, we've made some of those decisions by essentially saying that libraries and archives will be our path into these resources. They will be our path to access. And we will train our librarians and archivists rigorously and with a relatively consistent ethos of what it means to serve society. And I think what we're seeing is that that is changing, and yet we don't have an answer for how, as a society, we want to manage that kind of access. You would never see a librarian, if asked about World War II, pointing you to a Holocaust denial book, right? But that's what Google's doing. So that, I think, really um, captures an interesting point that I was thinking about with regard to uh, the difference between paper records and digital records, which is that you can feasibly do full text search on digital records. 
where you don't necessarily have to have an index or a categorization or anything. But in order for that to work, of course, you have to know what you're searching for. You have to know the right terms. You have to know how something may have been creatively misspelled and so on. And so I wonder if that is a good jumping off point to talk about the difference between digital records and uh, human curation. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, and it's one that I think is converging a little bit more than we might think. Um, Etsy posted a job for a librarian, and there are a lot of companies out there that actually hire very digital companies that are relying on learning algorithms to recommend things for you and to a certain degree to sort things for you that actually hire librarians to do that first set of categorization to handle some of those questions of, hey, did you really mean that? Maybe that's a misspelling. Come on. And I think there's this interesting question of for a lot of companies that have vast amounts of raw data, text that they're trying to make accessible, how do you get that first pass? that a recommendation engine can then build upon. And so I do see there a decent amount of possibility for coalescing where we use some of the skills that librarians have built up to categorize things in order to help train and have our algorithms build upon that knowledge. Without having the ethos of the librarian being part of the algorithm, how do we prevent those sorting algorithms from drifting into the realm of politicized content or popular content that is inaccurate or even propaganda? Yeah, I mean, I think that is an incredibly difficult problem for a lot of AI-based tools that we're seeing. Some popular examples are obviously the Twitter bot that was trained to interact with people and within a few hours became compromised essentially to was it yes ideologically compromised (laughs) yeah that's an interesting point to frame it as ideologically compromised i was thinking more along the security lines right it's essentially a hack but yeah i mean it's it is a lot more about how do we make sure that these bots have a certain degree of integrity Um, whether that is microsoft's tay whether that's google's image recognition algorithm that can't tell the difference between apes and black people whatever we use learning algorithms on i think we need to understand how much we have invested in the education of humans over time and how hard that is, right? And how much commitment we've had to make to that. Now, you know, obviously, I think we could probably be investing a little bit more in that, right? But we have 12 years of education available for our children in this this country without explicitly saying, thou shalt not ever do this, helps to explain why it's important for our shared community values to act in a certain way. And I think it's an interesting point to try to, in this environment, when there is a lot of doubt about who we are as a country, and there's not necessarily the same muscles that existed many, many decades back, for us to speak positively about what it means to be a part of a community part of a country, 
to say that this is what we believe in. And this is what we want our access to information to reflect. So what do you think a librarian or library science can offer a company like Etsy? Is it just constructing an ontology for them, for their listings, or does it go beyond that? Well, I think I'm probably the wrong person to answer that. You could get a very interesting panel here of people who work as librarians in the private sector. And my knowledge there is relatively limited, but yes, the primary job of a, I'm not sure they use the word ontologist, but it is, it's pretty much exactly that. You are developing what categories items should be sorting in and then helping to sort items into that, develop rules for what goes in to what category. There are also some interesting jobs in the private sector, such as a corporate archivist that also walk this interesting line of profit versus preservation for societal good. But I went the programming path pretty early on in my library career. So I would hate to step on the toes of the librarians doing really good work there. Maybe we can relate this to something that some of our listeners might have more familiar with in web development, which is information architecture. How do you classify and organize and present and navigate through the information that your website has? Yeah, definitely. Information architecture is on the curriculum of almost every library science degree. And it's interesting to see the approach there. I think to a certain degree, the structured presentation of categories doesn't always map to where websites currently are. If you think about the splash page, the hero page, or hero image at the top, and then the single page intro for most startups that are, I don't know, what is the word? Hidden pre-alpha stealth mode. There we go. Yes. Um, Those sites don't exactly map as well to structured information. And so I think when it comes to information architecture, there is maybe some room for a balancing of approaches where we recognize that highly structured information is not the best for access to information for a lot of things. And the way a library school course for information architecture would like you to design a website is actually probably pretty darn terrible. Would like to take a quick time out to do a commercial for our own podcast. That's so meta. We're advertising our podcast on our podcast. Actually, Greater Than Code is looking for sponsors. We're looking for the right corporate sponsor because right now we're entirely patron supported, which is fantastic. We have awesome patrons. And if you become a patron at any level, you get to participate in our Slack communication, which is actually really nice. Remember, as anyone who has been in one of our recordings knows, this is not a well-oiled machine. This is a well-edited machine. And that editing doesn't come cheap. So... Thank you, everyone, who supports the great Greater Than Code podcast. Now, in other news, Amy, I'd really like to get back to this question about Tay. You mentioned that she was hacked, and I find that really interesting because she wasn't hacked in like a break into your servers and mess with your data sense. She was hacked like right through her front door interface of, oh, you want to learn something? I'll teach you something, of a bunch of people just started spewing garbage at her. And, And this gets back to the part where... If we don't have librarians curating 
the information that we have access to. What we have is algorithms. When Google and Facebook are the stewards of our cultural story, then we're subject to whoever can manipulate those algorithms and whoever is economically or ideologically motivated to put in the effort to manipulate those algorithms. That's dangerous. Yeah, I definitely think it is. It's a big time of change, right? And you don't know where it's going. And I think that is why I use the term security hack when I talk about Tay, because I do think that we need to start thinking about altering AI output to give answers that it shouldn't be giving, give information that it shouldn't be giving as a security issue. I think someone correctly mentioned that this is kind of more a social engineering issue than a Tay was not being DDoSed, right? It's not the code side of hacking, but it is still something that endangers the security of the performance of AI-based applications. A social engineering is a security vector, and it's actually the hardest security vector to deal with. And I think as our algorithms become more sophisticated and become social creatures, they become susceptible to social engineering. And that's something the engineers behind Tay obviously never even considered. And that has yeah. the effect of social engineering on us. Yeah, I think there are two, at least two ways in which it is definitely a hack. The first is in a very literal way, which is that it was a compromise of its integrity as a system designed presumably not to be racist. To the extent that the designers didn't want to design a racist Twitter bot, its integrity was compromised and it was changed into something it wasn't intended to be. Um, the second is that it's a very simplistic form of meme hacking where the system clearly is designed to retain some phrases and things over others, and they were able to get it to retain those phrases, the racist ones, rather than other less racist phrases. Yeah. And I think there's an information security side of this where as algorithms become a bigger part of how things are suggested to us and how information is categorized and access is determined, that you could end up altering these algorithms to provide information that they really shouldn't be giving out. If you are calling in to a help system that is going to help get you information about how to cancel your order, right? It should not allow you to cancel someone else's order. And in the same way that something, if you ask it like, hey, so I'd really like to research the Facebook posts of, you know, this kind of group of people, right? It shouldn't be sharing things that have been deleted. It shouldn't be trained to share things that are really not related to what you're asking about and drown out the other information so that it can never be found. I feel like we should mention the Facebook algorithm for de determining what trending news is and <laughs> the role Quote that that news. Yeah, and the role that that most definitely played on our most recent election. Yeah, I was thinking of another example as well of perhaps uh, an expert system that's used for medical diagnoses. Uh, the equivalent attack on that from what happened to Tay would be that, you know, maybe you have something that's designed to provide 
you know, reproductive advice and you call into this thing expecting uh, fair and unbiased results and it tells you to sterilize yourself or something like that, right? Yeah. Just to be the, particularly sinister. <laughs> the integrity of a system is one of the three pillars of information security. I mean, we've got light bulbs that are DDoSing people, so it's not dissimilar from that. It's a system that was designed to do one thing that was modified against the intention of its creators to do something else. I'm going to go back to something you said earlier, Amy, about whose stories get recorded. And um, Rain, I think it was you who mentioned that in medieval times, we have the records of the merchant class and above. Whose stories are we collecting and whose stories are we archiving now um, based on these algorithmic selections? Like I think of Google and Google's relevance algorithms depend on essentially social networks. How many people are linking to your content is a huge part of determining how relevant your content is and what content gets surfaced through a search result. So whose stories are we making available to the public? Yeah, I think that's a really good thing to be thinking about. And I think there are two aspects to that. The first is what is accessible today. And I think that might, might be closer to the corollary of the public library. And I think with that, you can see, you know, we're seeing things like the Kardashians being promoted. There are clear studies that, you know, your implied socioeconomic power does impact how popular you are on social media platforms and how much your content gets surfaced. I think there's an, another interesting way to look at this from what we preserve. And on the archives side, I think we may be over op overly optimistic that we're preserving what we need to. I don't think algorithms really even come into it. An anecdote from the last year is that a university had a lot of minority students post their experiences with racism at the university using a, a particular Twitter hashtag. And these were stories that got a lot of publicity within the community because the community wasn't that familiar with microaggressions. And some of the more overt and explicit racist actions were just ones that people thought, oh, that can't happen here. We're a liberal community. And so it was a really revealing moment to have these minority students use Twitter to publicize what their experiences were at the university, which was not this beautiful, rosy, post-racial experience. And you would think that that would be incredibly important to preserve. And yet the way that those Twitter posts were preserved was an archival student this is a person who is still getting their MLS degree, decided to pull those down. She taught herself how to program to pull those down and store them. And the university didn't know what to do with them. And so they didn't accept the data. And I know that story continues on to uh, what I think is a, a slightly happier end. But that might be just me hoping for that and not actually confirming that. So I think that gets back to the fact that it's really hard to preserve some of this content and there's no existing societal statement of value on them. I think we know that they're important, but have we put that in words? Because yes, we can talk about what the future of libraries and archives are and how that is changing to use a certain degree of AI and learning algorithms. But when you talk about asking those institutions to figure it out themselves, 
it comes down to a question of what do we value? So yeah, I mean, we right now don't really value preserving this stuff and we value it only so much as Google is willing to expose it to us. There's a couple interesting bits in that story. One was that someone asked for people to tell their stories one way or another. Someone said, do this with this hashtag and we can consciously ask for the stories of people whose stories aren't traditionally preserved and publicized. But then, yeah, with the new data medium, we also have to find completely different ways of preserving them. And we don't know what those are yet. And more significantly, I think providing access to information and this being done by algorithms, it's like the story crafting has been taken from the historians and now belongs to the meme hackers. Yeah. And I think that's a really great way to speak about it. And it's a great place to find optimism because I think there are more and more efforts to try to find a happy medium where individuals can, to a certain degree, reclaim things. A good example of this is some of the personal archiving efforts that are being done at libraries across the country to help people preserve their own things. At a larger level, StoryCorps is really interesting as something that doesn't necessarily give guarantees that admission of an item to a university archives would, but does allow for stories to be promoted, to have a signal boost, and to have archival efforts put to preserving them for a longer period than a conversation, a podcast might. And I think I personally have a great degree of optimism that we can find a balance between allowing access and preservation to be determined by companies whose motivation is profit, even though they provide incredible resources in the present moment, they're still making choices that may not be the same ones we would make as a society. And so I see a lot of optimism in individuals taking the time to get more involved and to create those stories of their own and to be part of movements and communities that will start to repeat those stories, to make them more important and to value them as a community and therefore give more power to them because ultimately it's the powerful stories that are the ones that influence us right now and are the ones that we preserve. I think a lot about the tragedy of the commons. For those who don't know, the, the basic idea is there's a village green and all of the local farmers are allowed to graze their animals on the village green. And any individual acting solely in their own best interest is incentivized to grow their herd as large as possible to take advantage of the public space for feeding their herds, which of course works against the community at large. And I feel like in our current society, it's a digital commons and access to the commons is not what is subject to gatekeeping, but it's attention that is a scarce resource. And people whose stories are powerful and are transformative may not have the social standing to have their voices amplified and preserved and recorded and transmitted. And that's the real tragedy that we're facing now. It's celebrity worship. It's people of a higher economic, um, socioeconomic status. It's people who have connections who are given greater voice 
And that's to the detriment of people who maybe have different perspectives or different stories to tell. Yeah, it's really interesting to be looking at our media currently for communication in comparison to different ways we have communicated as a society over time and to see us go through these cycles of how much information we publish in what mediums and how much we expect people to be able to consume. And I think there's a really interesting challenge today because the volume is so much greater than it has been at any one point for people to consume and no one can come close. But that doesn't mean that there haven't been similar times when the rate of increase of information available has exploded. And I think it's an incredible challenge to find a balance where the voices of the minority are heard at the same time that there is a cohesive center and that the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are have some degree of cohesion. I want to make a point that sort of ties together what we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast in terms of who is history written about with what we've been talking about recently, which is meme hacking and this idea uh, that some ideas get to live while others don't. And mostly what I want to do is use this as a pretext to make a joke. Uh, so I will do that now. So Winston Churchill famously said, uh, history is written by the victors. And that's not exactly correct, is it? Uh, it's not the victors necessarily. I mean, today, it's apparently still a part of the political discourse, whether or not the Civil War was motivated by slavery. So they didn't win, but they still get to drive the discourse. I think it's more accurate to say that history is written by the people with the power to control the survival of memes that they prefer. And if we want more working class representation in the ideas that are available to people in schools and in history books, then what we really need to do is rise up and seize the memes of production. I see what you did Did you there. just say the memes of production? I absolutely did. I think that that really gets back to some of the optimism about people getting involved though, right? There's no better time than now for people to be able to produce their own stories. On the other hand, obviously there is the horror of how do you sort through what should get attention, right? I think we could have a whole other podcast about how social media <laughs> has impacted uh, information availability and, and dispersal. Yeah, definitely. Amy, that's a value in your background in history is the appreciation of how important those stories are because sometimes you want to say, oh, it's all about the code. Oh, no, we're only evaluating the code. It's never just about the code because the stories, the narratives in human life are greater than code. I want to mention, too, how little control we have in the world that we live in now over our own narratives even you gave the example of people sharing their experiences of racism and racially motivated microaggressions. But I think back to, I need to name search myself from time to time to find out if 4chan is organizing a harassment campaign against me, for example. And my own Google results tell a story about points in my life that I have no control over. In my related searches, when you search for my name on Google, it brings up Opalgate, 
It brings up my dead name from pr- prior to transition. Um, it brings up a lot of pieces that I don't think are relevant to the overarching arc of my personal life. And there is no way for me to influence that. All I can try to do is do like more visible things and get more attention, but I can't really manipulate those results to own my own story. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting side effect of the current vast amount of information that is being spewed out right now, which is that previously there was sort of a pact in society that you would only lose the control of your own story if you were in public life. And you were important enough for a newspaper to spend time writing about you. And obviously some of that breaks down when we talk about smaller communities and about the economically disadvantaged who can't fight back in those situations. But it was a far smaller part of society that was affected. And I think over history, you see these vast points of change when pacts break down because the scope of things changes. And it's no longer valid that if someone's writing about you, they should be able to say whatever they want, and that should be the first Google hit when someone searches for you. As opposed to 100 years ago, where if someone went out and chopped down a tree, and that tree was brought 200 miles to a paper mill, and it was chopped up and made into paper, and someone printed about you. And then there's a whole other story for creating the ink, right? That is a vast investment by society in writing three or four words about you even. But now there is such a lower cost to writing that the social pact about who gets to say what about whom is no longer really valid because it's no longer limited. You have no control over your story no matter who you are. And it's a really relatively scary thing for the vast majority of us who have a lot of different personas that we present on a day-to-day. And it's something that can destroy someone's life if one of those stories doesn't conform the way people want it to. There's a really interesting dynamic where, on the one hand, Twitter and Facebook have democratized the availability of information, but on the other, they've served to concentrate the power of the corporate media into fewer, larger, more powerful groups. So the Boston Globe used to have offices all across the world and used to be a pretty important newspaper. And now it's essentially dead. So the New York Times has consolidated a lot of that power. It's interesting to me that it seems to have both effects, both democratizing the availability of information for me and you to to publish our information, but also uh, sort of concentrating the power that the New York Times has to form the narrative. Yeah, and it's also divorced a lot of that power from the smaller scale, where it's no longer true that I know the journalist who is picking the AP stories that are going to be in the town newspaper. And while that in many ways has incredible benefits, it has a lot of problems when those stories end up not meaning something to you. And you lose a sense of community about the stories you're telling to each other. I think that's one of the most interesting things I've seen in public libraries is an increased involvement in wanting to build community 
in create spaces and in creating spaces and to help people build that community for themselves while telling stories about the place that they live. On the other hand, I'm not sure that that is really going to build the power that that we would want behind those stories and, and the feeling of involvement that you want people to feel like they have in telling the story of who they are and who their community is and what we value together. Cool. It's time <laughs> for reflections. Let's reflection eight. <laughs> I guess I'll go first. For me, this really makes me think about the access we have to information through the media, through Twitter, how that access is controlled and shaped. And you can't really talk about that without uh, bringing up Noam Chomsky and his his work, especially manufacturing consent. And he is also, uh, by the way, the reason that we call regular expressions regular expressions. So one thing that's really struck me throughout this podcast and this discussion is um, just how economics and politics rear their ugly heads in so many of the things that we've talked about. Things like who has their records preserved and who has access to literacy. Who can afford to hire librarians like a tech company versus a public library? Um, who's motivated to put in the time to flood the corpus of a chatbot so they can get it to promote their own agenda? And who gets to control public stories about any given person? And And to me, yeah, code is part of some of those things, but you know, the politics and the economics of those situations are simply inescapable. And I feel it's appropriate that we talked very little about code and mostly about these other things because, you know, those are the real intractable problems. And I, I want us to focus more on grappling with those things. A lot of my thoughts um, centered around curated history and, Amy, what you said in the early days about, like, who at a university is responsible for the archives and how the archival process works and knowing that someone with an ethos is curating that history versus the algorithmically generated histories that we're being subject to today and the long-term impact on how that's going to affect how we view ourselves as a society and how future historians are going to use that information to try and put together a picture of who we are as a society. And also the herring notion that thanks to the corporate players who control the means by which we get our voices out into the public are motivated, like Sam said, by, by economics and owning our own narratives is, if not already impossible, at least in peril. I was thinking about the vast amounts of data that there are and how huge that is. And then we choose some subset of that to preserve. And some small piece of that actually gets stored. And then an even smaller piece of that is accessible. It's searchable. We can find it and use it for research. That It's like we have this tiny little keyhole we're looking through at this big landscape. And everybody looks through a different keyhole, but certain people control a lot of the keyhole. And behind that keyhole is a lot of stuff that's there, but also some of that stuff is just drawings that people made up and stuck in front of your keyhole. And you think that's the world because this is the only piece of it that you can see. I think it would be like important to give people internet access as a public right, just so they have some chance at contributing their story from their own perspective to the depth of human history. I'd like to end with a call to our listeners to 
consider the possibility of working in the public sector. This isn't something that we've discussed on this podcast, but I think if what Jesse just said to you pulls a little in your heartstring and makes you want to be part of making those decisions on a day-to-day basis, then I'd like you to consider this. I've worked at some really great companies, for-profit companies, that are doing really fascinating things, really important things. But I have never worked outside the public sector in a place where everybody had a common mission. And yes, we disagreed about it, but you came into work and you knew that today you were going to help people. And literally everyone in that organization was there to do that. And it's a thing of incredible power to feel like you are a part of helping your community, your society, answer some of the toughest and most challenging problems. And you can do that as a programmer. You're still writing code, but your code works on the edges of coming together to solve these issues. And sure, sometimes the problems you're solving in code are not the most cutting edge of technical problems, but the social problems are absolutely far more impactful than any complex algorithm monitoring solution or whatever the heck you're dealing with on that particular day. And so if any of this conversation has made you think, hey, that's really interesting, there's a great need for people to continue doing this work. And I can say it is the most meaningful work I've ever done. And thank you for doing that work, Amy. That's greatly appreciated. And this has been a wonderful conversation. We've touched on a lot of really important ideas. And I really look forward to the conversation continuing in the Greater Than Code Slack community, which, of course, you can join by pledging on patreon.com slash greater than code at any level. Thank you to all of the fellow panelists today. Amy, thank you so much for your time and your insight. It's been wonderful having you here. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone. Yeah, thank you. Can I just close by saying that I own a trademark on the memes of production, which means that I own the means of production of the memes of production. <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>